0: the broadcast as heard on KPF. 90.7 FM in Los Angeles in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI. Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. Orleans' WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Seattle, Washington's KODX. KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California. KKRN in Round Mountain, California. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, NetRoots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, 5 days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, you are gifted with me, Angie Coiro. I host In Deep with Angie Coiro, heard on many of these same stations and streams. Well, it looks like any effort to blow by the sexual assault accusation against Brett Kavanaugh is dead. Now that the accuser has been forced into the public spotlight, even Kellyanne Conway has been forced into decency. Uh, She should not be ignored or insulted. She should be heard. Now, check this out. Donald Trump was surprisingly measured when he finally came out with a statement, by his standards anyway, because he said essentially the same thing Kellyanne Conway did at a public event. It's very rare for him and an underling to read from almost exactly the same script, from we should hear this out to criticism of the Dems. It's just not the level of discipline that he is known for. Either his keepers are having an effect or he understands that he has to play a grown-up for this one. I don't know. I don't know. It's just odd. You know, it is deeply understandable why a woman old enough to have seen or been influenced by the Anita Hill hearings in 91 would not have wanted her name openly identified with a powerful man in Washington. It's deeply traumatic even in well, in any case, to open up to a police officer or a loved one or a therapist, and you multiply that by international headlines, I don't know, if your heart does not ache for this woman, I, I worry about you. Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine should be ashamed. She questioned why this took so long to surface. Now, the original report came to Anna issue. Then it went to Diane Feinstein. Neither has gone on the record exposing her name, or neither did go on the record exposing her name. Is it possible that having soaked for years in the bro culture of American politics, that both women knew exactly what this professor would be in for if her name went public? Isn't it possible they wanted to respect her despite what the incident could reveal? Isn't it possible that they agonized, that most recipient hands along the way agonized about revealing her name would mean when she specifically wanted otherwise. Think about it. This is the sacrifice of a woman's privacy and probably her character versus the confirmation of a Supreme Court justice who just might have a sexual assault in his past. An accusation versus the lifetime appointment of the accused. Yes, six weeks is a long time. Not compared with this woman's lifetime. Almost three decades later, Anita Hill is mostly associated with being publicly pilloried. Who signs up for that? Who signs up to bring it down on the next woman's head? That's the choice they were confronted with. I'd like to think if I were at the end of that story, they'd take quite a few weeks to agonize over whether I deserve to be roasted in public. If you have read Lisa Graves' articles, her firsthand accounts of Brett Kavanaugh's believability or lack thereof, either she is lying and this woman is lying, or Kavanaugh needs more serious questioning. Her posts, by the way, are Brett Kavanaugh can't be trusted, we know, because we worked as counsel to senators when he was in the Bush White House, that's at time.com, and I wrote some of the stolen memos that Brett Kavanaugh lied to the Senate about on Slate. Not nearly enough coverage for those two. Now, not unrelated, there's this article from Roll Call. Quote: A Democratic senator wants to know if Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh ever received email from an alleged sexually explicit email list run by a former federal appellate judge who resigned amid sexual misconduct allegations. The article goes on to connect the dots. Alex Kaczynski served on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit for over 30 years until he retired in December amid allegations of sexual misconduct. Kavanaugh clerked for Kaczynski in 91. And Senator Chris Coons of Delaware wants to know if the high court nominee was part of the illicit email list. Coons wrote a 13-page document, excerpted by Roll Call. Quote, it's been reported that Judge Kaczynski had a sexually explicit email list called the Easy Rider Gag List. Among his questions. For Kavanaugh, did you ever receive an email from this list? If it is necessary to refresh your recollection, please review your email accounts before answering this question. Do you believe that Judge Kaczynski treated women inappropriately? during the entire course of your relationship with Judge Kaczynski, did you ever witness him engaging in inappropriate behavior? So why question Kavanaugh about Kaczynski's behavior? Because he was on the inside. If he witnessed this, if he witnessed it and even wasn't on the email list, let alone being on it, he did have a responsibility to report that. It was incumbent on him to take the moral stance, and if he didn't, that is relevant. The rest of that article is at rollcall.com. That list of Kavanaugh's female classmates who attested to his character may, emphasis, may be falling apart. Political tried to reach all of them after the accuser went public, and only two so far have gone on the record still supporting him. To be fair, Politico reports that most haven't responded at all. You can't guess at what that means. They didn't respond at all, period. Meanwhile, women who say they attended the same high school, hundreds of them over the decades, are signing a public letter that what Christine Blasey Ford said happened to her at Kavanaugh's hands is completely consistent with the culture they experienced at that high school, Holton Arms. Now it's list versus list. You know, two things stick with me about this whole mess. First, Ford's fear that while Kavanaugh allegedly covered her mouth to stifle her screams while he tried to tear off her clothes, she was afraid she would die, accidentally be killed. What must that be like? And as she told the Washington Post, she didn't want to come forward with this because, I'm quoting, why suffer through the annihilation if it's not going to matter? That, first and foremost, is what we learned from the Anita Hill hearings. You suffer, your character is annihilated, and ultimately it doesn't matter. So assuming just for a moment the accusations are true, do we believe in maturing and redemption? Can you say something, can you do something like this at 17? what he was accused of, if he did that, can you do that at that age? And then over time, become a decent human being with fairness, empathy, and a conscience. Now, so much of what I have heard and read all my life, and I am a voracious reader, very interested in human psychology, so much of what I've heard and read indicates that if you haven't formed those traits by a very young age, well before 17, that you're going to struggle with forming them at all. So I was corresponding this morning with Lawrence Steinberg, distinguished university university prof of psychology at Temple University, and he doesn't feel that that's the case if this is an isolated incident with intoxicants, intoxicants involved. Here's a letter that he has sent to the New York Times. No word as to whether they're going to publish it. There are many reasons to be concerned about the nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh for a position on the Supreme Court, but something he may have done as an intoxicated 17-year-old at a party with his classmates is not one of them. Indeed, the very body on which Judge Kavanaugh would serve if confirmed has ruled repeatedly during the past 13 years that people under the age of 18 should not be held to the same standards of criminal responsibility as adults because teenagers are impulsive, susceptible to peer influence, and still capable of change. Few of us, his letter goes on, would want to be judged in adulthood on the basis of isolated incidents in which we were involved, or accused of having been involved, as teenagers. I sure wouldn't. That's the end of his letter. I appreciate his level of fairness, and I appreciate his knowledge of the court cases that establish the standard he's recommending that we uphold. On the other hand, an intoxicant as part of the reason, I don't know, how many people have you tried to rape when you were drunk? Me? None. Most? None. Surely it says something. I believe Kavanaugh's accuser. I cannot fathom a woman who will volunteer for what she is about to go through has already begun going through. And Lisa Graves is a colleague for whom I have immense respect. I believe her, too, especially based on her direct experience with Kavanaugh's level of honesty. Meanwhile, Chuck Grassley wants to wrap all this up by talking on the phone with Professor Ford and Kavanaugh. What can one even say? Update on Florence. Twenty-three are reported dead now in the storms and the subsequent floods so far— You would not know that from the toddler-in-chief's Twitter feed, his primary means for conveying what really matters to him. He has retweeted restrained weather updates, but his own messages that he theoretically writes with his own tiny hands are about how innocent and what a great leader he is. And, oh, yeah, Obama. New Quinnipiac poll addresses both Trump and Kavanaugh Kavanaugh first. This is so revealing. Men support his confirmation 46 to 37 percent. Women opposed 47 to 36 percent. And the racial gulf is even more evident. White voters support confirmation 49 percent, with opposition at 66 percent among black voters, 53 percent among Hispanic voters, America contains so many worlds that barely touch each other. So meanwhile, here's what the same poll says about Trump, and he's not going to like, well, most of this. 57% say he does not have good leadership skills. 55% say he doesn't care about average Americans. 65% say he's not level-headed. Sixty percent say he doesn't share voters' values. Fifty-five percent say he is not fit to serve as president. Fifty-five percent. Only 48 percent, less than half of Americans surveyed, say that he is mentally stable. Hmm. Mark your calendars. It's been 10 years since the collapse of Lehman Brothers. One of the voices saying that it could happen all over again she was actually on the scene for that, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Madeline Antonchik was the chief risk officer at Lehman Brothers from 2002 until 2007. Here's part of what she had to say in The New York Times today. Quote, Lehman knew precisely the risks it was taking. It was my job to know those risks and communicate them to the rest of the senior leadership team. There came a time when they were not interested in hearing what I had to say. And Lehman lost its way risk management was repeatedly overruled. Okay, we've seen a lot of regulations since then. What about that? Quote, The unintended consequence is that risk has shifted away from banks to less transparent, unregulated entities. For example, the increase in capital requirements have helped feed the so-called shadow banking system. Because new rules limit banks from making leveraged loans Hedge funds and private equity firms have taken up the slack and provide direct financing. This is hardly the outcome, she says, intended by the regulators. This peer to peer lending is not regulated in the same way banks are. And moving this lending to shadow banks reduces transparency to regulators. Then she says, To me, the biggest risk of all has not been adequately addressed. What I learned from the layman experience is the importance of governance. Leadership is about doing the right thing, and no one should go unchallenged when they're about to make a questionable decision. This culture of checks and balances is still lacking in many organizations. Meanwhile, Alan Scherter at CBS Moneywatch is tallying the signs we are on the precipice. Again, check out his list. The share of national income captured by the richest 10% of Americans rose from 34% in 1980 to 47% in 2016. Between 1980 and 2016, the share of America's income going to the top 1% nearly doubled while that going to the bottom 50% plunged. After declining following the Depression, the top 1% share of wealth in the U.S. has shot back up roughly to where it was in the 1930s. Between 1970 and 2016, the gap between the richest and poorest Americans jumped 27 percentage points. 27 percentage points. Last point, as of 2017, by some measures, CEOs at large companies, on average, earned more than 300 times what the typical worker made, up from 58 times in 1989 and 20 times in 1965. Let me give you that back. As of 2017, by some measures... CEOs at large companies, on average, earned more than 300 times what the typical worker made, up from 58 times in 1989 and 20 times in 1965. That is from Lehman Brothers' is Long Gone But the Economic Rot Lingers, recommended reading at the CBS News site. Coming up, we're going to spend some time with Chris Hedges talking about his new book, America, The Farewell Tour. I'm Angie Kourou. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this
1: is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you.
0: not so the Bible said, and it still is new. Mama have, papa but God bless the child that got his own it's the broadcast I'm Angie Cuero. hey I knocked one off my bucket list last week I have always wanted to meet and interview Chris Hedges. Longtime foreign correspondent for The New York Times, minister, prison instructor, columnist, deep thinker. Last week, my turn came. We sat down for my show, In Deep, to talk about his book, America, The Farewell Tour. And I'm sharing some excerpts with you here, especially in light of the Lehman Brothers anniversary. It's kind of a sneak preview because our In Deep stations have not played this whole hour yet, although you can see it. It's already online on C-SPAN's book TV Now, his book is divided into individual analyses of individual elements that he sees as degrading American cultures. And these are all, he says, a result of inequality and corporate dominance. Here's Chris Hedges. Let's go into some of the areas of escape and decay that you look at. And I'm picking out some of the chapter headings to give us an entree. Heroin, work, sadism, hate, gambling. And then, of course, Chapter 7, the last chapter, we'll talk about freedom Heroin's an interesting one because it starts out as something of an escape. And then, of course, once you're addicted, there you are. Uh, We've seen so much death. Deaths have almost doubled since 2006. And I think that it might be a surprise to some people to look at that and see corporate underpinnings there. Can you explain how corporations are there? And in fact, if you'd like to respond to that story I mentioned, about what the Purdue Pharma exec is doing now, which is...
1: Well, this is the Sackler family, who are the largest drug pushers in the country and have made billions off of uh, addicting hundreds of thousands, if not a few million Americans, uh, by pushing heroin derivatives, Oxycontin, uh, and setting up doctors are complicit in setting up pill mills where do these pill mills, where are they set up? Well, they're not set up in Menlo Park, and they're not set up in Princeton, where I live. Uh, they are set up in places that uh, are suffering deep economic dislocation and despair, of course, southern West Virginia. And these pills were given—I mean, you had a backache. Suddenly, you got a heroin derivative. You got an Oxycontin, uh, Percocet. And they're highly addictive, uh, and they're expensive— and eventually, you turn to heroin because it's cheap, $6 a bag. Um, and the bags are now often laced with fentanyl, uh, and they kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh,
0: Which oddly makes the heroin more attractive to some of the consumers. Yeah. It, yeah, if yeah. you have a death from fentanyl, then you have a group of addicts, you're going, now there's I, a high. I, I,
1: I wrote about it in the book, yeah. which surprised me. It's death by marketing. Somebody dies of an overdose, uh, and everybody wants that. All these bags have names, you know, I don't know, Red Star or something. So they all want it. Because, I mean, it's just kind of nuts, but it shows you how perverse that world is. And heroin, uh, there's a book, Dreamland, uh, I forget the author, it's quite good, which I read. Um, and he, in there, he writes about how that arrow, the molecules of heroin, it, doesn't le- it can't wash it out of your body. So a year later, you can uh, feel as if you're dope sick, even though you've been clean for a year. It's a really pernicious drug, Um, and that's what makes what the Sackler family did through Purdue Pharma so criminal.
0: There's an interesting point you make about that is when rats get an extra dose of opioids, they increase their play with each other. They even tickle each other. When rodents are allowed to socialize freely rather than remain isolated in steel cages, they voluntarily avoid the opiate-laden bottle hanging from the bars of their cage, they've already got enough. Yeah. What does that tell us about the humans in this Well, it tells us
1: that our, you know, and and the model for this book is really Durkheim's study of suicide, the breakdown of social bonds, Durkheim found, led to a desire for self-annihilation. And as Durkheim understood that lust to commit death is at its core about self-annihilation. Mm. So you see it in these nihilistic mass shootings. I write about Dylan Roof, of course, and quote because Dylan Roof left a written record. So I mean, it's it's a I think a very revealing study for what's happened, the social decay, uh, the, what Durkheim calls the anime, uh, that has propelled people into activities that are deeply self-destructive so the book is about those pathologies I mean gambling for instance and I didn't know a lot about it um, until uh, I spent time in the Trump Taj Mahal before Trump even announced he was going to be president uh, and 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 it was it had gone through several bankruptcies uh, there were rodents literally running across the dining room floors uh, you went into the bathrooms and they had plastic bags over the Urinals of the toilets saying out of order. The 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 tiles were falling off. The there was mold in the ceiling. Uh, many of the rooms have been mothballed. It was kind of a wonderful image for what he's going to do to the country. Um, <laughs> and uh, and what was and and uh, Shuld, uh, uh, a professor at NYU, wrote "Addicted uh, by Design," a very fine book where she w- worked with the industry about how eighty um, percent of gambling is done on slots. And these slots replicate the kind of zombie-like state that one gets when they take uh, a depressant like heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, people – it's called time on device. And the, and the way they monitor these people, I mean, many of the tactics in terms of uh, building profiles uh, that now the security and surveillance state uh, – and thank you, Google and Facebook, I should – say for complicitness complicit in this uh, build on uh, about us were pioneered within the casino industry because they wanted to, I mean, they did, they, they built projections as to how much addicted gamblers would actually spend during their lifetimes. Um, wh- you know, they could trace when they would get frustrated they would show up and give them free coupons while they're sitting at that slot machine uh, to, to keep them. Um, and and uh, uh, gambling addicts actually have the highest rates of attempted suicide or suicide of any addiction. So, but, it, but it replicates the many other forms of addiction, which are really about uh, f- unplugging yourself from, uh, from the world around you because reality has become so difficult to bear.
0: There was only one place in the book that I was reading that I I, I felt a a strong disagreement with you. When you were talking about prostitution and you interviewed some women who are activists against prostitution, you also interviewed some women who were frankly victimized by prostitution. The only thing that rang wrong to me is the dismissing of women who say that they are voluntarily making a living and okay with being in prostitution with okay with being paid for sex and the difficulty I had with that was there was well the women who are saying that don't realize they've been victimized they don't realize you know, the psychology that's going on and I feel women are told an awful lot that they're wrong about the truth they express about themselves that when they state their reality someone said well if you were if you were more keyed in you understand that what you're saying isn't true that was the only thing that hit me wrong
1: well First of all, statistically, we know that most of the women who engage in, and I'm actually writing about a very extreme form of prostitution, I'm writing about the BDSM community out of kink.com in San Francisco, which is torture. I mean, there's just no other way around it. I took classes at uh, kink.com sitting in a basement room with a bunch of doms, you know, kind of dweeby guys dressed in black. Uh, um, And we know statistically that a huge percentage of these women were sexually abused, often as children. Um, uh, I've interviewed enough of them, and my longest chapter in Empire of Illusion is on the porn industry, to know that it was uh, economic uh, distress that pushed them uh, into this industry. Also, it's uh, the PTSD. When I first started interviewing uh, women who had been in the porn industry, I remember the first interview I did and they started speaking, I instantly recognized the PTSD that I carried from 20 years of war. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the first point. The second point is that the vast majority of women who are, are prostituted uh, are—it's not—what uh, was that movie, Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts? It's not like that. Right. They're, they're usually women of color, uh, and if you go to Europe, they're all uh, women of color or women from Eastern Europe who are trafficked. And um, I, I do break with the left. I mean, you talk about being a liberal. I mean, this is not a liberal belief, but it's one that I hold, actually, that um, we have to decriminalize the act of prostitution, i.e., the women are not the criminals— uh, but the traffickers and the uh, the pimps and, you know, these figures are—should be criminalized. And customers. And customers and johns. So uh, I think that's a very rational model. I think it's compassionate to the women. But the point is that we should be building a society whereby that is not the only economic alternative a woman has. And as you know, I quote Rachel Moran, mm-hmm. who was a prostituted woman in Ireland for many years— And she's quite graphic about describing having sex with repugnant men who she doesn't want to have, as she calls it, being raped for a living. Uh, And uh, yes, there are very vocal voices in the quote-unquote sex industry, uh, but I would encourage people to look at where the money's coming from uh, that funds that industry. Uh, Most of the women that I sought out who had been in the prostitution industry or in the porn industry, they don't want to talk. Um, you know, they suffer the same kind of trauma, well, it's not the same, but a similar form of trauma that those of us who come out of war suffered. I would also add, you know, as a war correspondent, the only thing that wars produce in greater number than corpses are prostitutes. Um, These are uh, widows, women, uh, girls in refugee camps. I mean, prostitution was endemic in every war that I covered. And it gets into the commodification of human beings, you know, that, that, of course, the natural world is a commodity that we're destroying, but also under corporate capitalism, human beings are commodities that we exploit. Uh, And as somebody who sees with intrinsically in every form of life, and not just human life, uh, the sacred, I, 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 this is just something I can't, I can't support.
0: Let's move over to the alt-right and the alt-light and how one serves essentially as an entree to the other.
1: Right. So Trump is kind of the alt-light. You know, there's good people on both sides. (laughs) But it funnels people into the alt-right, which is kind of that spectral figure of Stephen Miller um, in the White House. It normalizes and maybe legitimizes racism as we said before, incitement to violence. Uh, It has the uh, effect of demonizing the vulnerable. And in proto-fascist or fascist societies, it's the vulnerable who pay. I mean, the whole idea that 11 million undocumented workers, most of whom are from Mexico and Central America, are at fault for the economic decline of the United States is patently absurd. Mm. But as things devolve and we are headed for another economic crisis, the New York Times four or five days ago had a very chilling editorial that said this, and they had an article a week ago about how the fracking industry would be the next dot-bomb, dot-com crash because it's on projected profits. It's not actually on In fact, the fracking industry loses tremendous amounts of money. And in a moment of instability, then you have already mainstreamed Islamophobia. You've already mainstreamed racism, uh, attacks against poor people of color, and uh, the elites. And this goes back to Yugoslavia. Will then use and d- or direct that rage towards the vulnerable uh, and allow this in- incohate, uh anger to express itself through violence. As if these people are somehow responsible, and and you know the 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 uh, one of the things that disturbs me. There are two things that disturb me particularly about Trump. One is the poisoning of civil discourse, mm-hmm. but also uh, that that characteristic which I write about in the book of the permanent lie, which is different. All politicians lie. I, I was a reporter; they all lie. There's no exception. Obama lies. Clinton they all lie, but Clinton who sold us NAFTA, and sold us NAFTA by promising that it would mean millions more good American jobs, doesn't continue to tell us that NAFTA produced millions of good American jobs. The permanent lie which Trump engages in, and which all demagogues, all dictators, all totalitarian systems engage in, is spouted regardless of reality. You know, we're just watching how they fix the pictures. You know, we had the Park Service edit the pictures Mm -hmm. of the inauguration. Reality doesn't make—and doesn't, that's extremely dangerous. Hannah Arendt writes about it in Origins of Totalitarianism, because it's what you see in front of you is being denied by the megaphone. Mm -hmm. And it creates a, a kind of schizophrenia. And unfortunately, we are a society awash in fake news, which doesn't come out of Moscow. It comes out of Fox News. It comes out of Breitbart. It comes out of these—I mean, the whole idea that Fox News is now considered a legitimate journalistic enterprise is staggering and well, frightening.
0: While Britain treat, treats Fox News as unreliable and not a legitimate news well, outlet. Well, of
1: course, it's unreliable, and it's a, it's a piece—it's propaganda.
0: Well, you're, you're on RT, which is yes. a, a Russian news outlet. Yes. It could be taken as a conflict of interest to say that Russia is not a fake news machine.
1: Well, I didn't say Russia wasn't a fake news machine. All governments—I don't trust any government, including the Russian government. I mean, I'm not discriminating here. But if you are an anti-capitalist and an anti-imperialist critic, you have nowhere to go anymore. And so uh, I I know very well why RT allows my show. It's the same reason Voice of America put Václav Havel— On During the communist regime, Havel, who I was in the Magic Lantern Theater every night in Prague during the Velvet Revolution with Havel, was a socialist. He didn't support American imperialist adventurism in Vietnam or anywhere else, but he had nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. And this is about the corruption of our media platforms and in particularly our public television. If you went back to the 1960s on public television, you could... C, Malcolm X, Noam Chomsky, our greatest intellectual who's yes. been b- b- completely uh, blacklisted. Yes. Uh, Howard Zinn, James Baldwin. And now, because they've slashed the funding, because PBS is dependent on corporate donations like NPR, it's, uh, uh, the, the, it, it's this constricture of acceptable opinion. And of course, you know, the Koch brothers are big investors in public broadcasting. Now, of course, they're destroying the crown jewel of American democracy, which is called public education. And that constricture has left us without a vocabulary to understand the class warfare that is being waged against us by a global, corporate, oligarchic, and I would argue criminal class. Um, and that's by intent. And so, the, the, the elites understand that, and this is across the political spectrum, there, nobody's buying their ideology of global capitalism, globalization, neoliberalism, whatever you want to call it. Nobody's buying it. They're not buying it on the right. They're not buying it on the left. And so the elites have, re- have gone after, over the last year, those critics of corporate capitalism and imperialism who already exist on the margins of the internet. Mm-hmm. And how have they done that? Well, Google... Facebook, have imposed algorithms that block those people out. So I write a column every Monday for the website Truthdig, run by Robert Scheer, one of the great American journalists, former editor of Ramparts. And so they have what they call impressions. So if you'd gone to Google and you typed, uh, let's say, imperialism, and I had recently written a story on imperialism or column, then it would be there with other. Now it's not there. And so we've watched at Truthdig alone the referrals— from imperialism uh, decline over the last 12 months from 700,000 to below 200,000, as they perfect the algorithms. All of the sites, Black Agenda Report, Counterpunch, Alternet, which has lost 63% of its traffic, World Socialist website, 80-something percent of its traffic. Couple that with the abolition of net neutrality, and what they've done is uh, further push their critics, Uh, from reaching the public, because they have no credibility left. And that loss of credibility is what led to the insurgency in the Democratic Party with Sanders. And it's what led to the insurgency in the Republican Party with Trump. And the elites are kind of
0: scrambling. Let's take a quick pause here, and then we'll get more of Chris Hedges. I'm Angie Coiro. This is The (laughs) broadcast. And thanks. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero with more excerpts from my conversation with Chris Hedges. Let's talk about trying to decide who it is that we can partner with if we're going to save the country, if we're going to form alliances. Uh, you talked about the Industrial Areas Foundation, which I had not heard of before. That's and the that- old
1: Saul Alinsky Foundation.
0: Yes, And you're talking about people who come together who may not otherwise merge on thoughts. You know, um, people who come out of churches going with people who are atheists, but they all recognize a common need. Well,
1: that's the point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm very opposed to writing off as irredeemable or deplorable Trump supporters. Um, I've been in, you know, in Anderson, most of these old UAW workers, they voted for Sanders, but in the general election, they voted for Trump. They weren't going to vote for Clinton, not after NAFTA. Impossible. And I, maybe it comes from my stock of a small town, Maine, where most of my relatives held political views, which were pretty repugnant and drove around literally with gun racks. And, but, but it gave me a window into their struggles. And the only way that we're going to advance is to build coalitions around major economic issues. I mean, if you went into a Walmart and said, I'm here to organize, I mean, Walmart, the uh, the Walmart family, the Waltons, would never allow you to even get in Walmart. I mean, there's the great union-busting corporation of America. But if you could get into a Walmart and said, we're here to organize for $15 minimum wage, uh, you would certainly have people of various political persuasions who... Would would join you in that cause, and I think with that uh, we have to. I, I I am very critical, as you know, of the politics of multiculturalism and uh, identity politics divorced from economic justice. Uh, and I think that you know there was. I think it was Lord Salisbury who said there's no there's no uh, there's no permanent alliances, only permanent power. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, certainly was how Saul Alinsky worked in Chicago. Uh, we have to organize around issues that affect the lives of working men and women and the poor and, you know, who they voted for, if they voted, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, I think we have a right to ask them to respect everyone around them, but we're only going to build significant change by making these alliances not falling into the trap of the class divide by splitting the working classes along racial you know, or ideological lines. That serves the interests of of the oligarchs.
0: Doesn't that turn a little bit problematic? I'm thinking specifically of when Bernie Sanders was on the trail and there were some Black Lives Matter activists who got up at one of his rallies and said, you're not listening. We're being shot in the street. You can talk about giving us more jobs. You can talk about, you know, making more money available to us. Right now we're being killed and need to focus on that. And I think that when you put the blanket of identity politics on that, it can sound, especially from a white guy, kind of dismissive. Well, I, I don't but the, look at
1: the Black Lives Matter movement as identity politics at all.
0: Forgive me. I misunderstood that.
1: I, I, I'm talking about uh, places like Princeton where I teach.
0: You could, because when you said racism, I thought you just well, put it in the same...
1: Uh, no. I'm, I'm a strong... I write in the book. I'm a strong supporter of the last chapter of the Black Lives right. movement. movement. Uh, and as a matter of fact, interview activists from Ferguson uh, who I admire immensely Yes. Um, no, they're responding to police terror, police murder, uh, which happens in marginal communities every single day in this country. Mm. Uh, and they have done so with immense courage. Uh, and I will also add that I found Bernie Sanders, especially at the beginning of his campaign, tone deaf on the issue of race and racial violence. I teach in a prison, so mm, yes. I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I see up close uh, what we have done to poor people of color. The, our system of mass incarceration, uh, which is one of the great human rights violations of the industrial world, 25% of the world's prison population, we are 5% of the world's prison population, 94% of these people never even had a jury trial. This is about social control. A- and and we saw it. And Clinton, you know, go back to the 1994 omnibus crime bill, where he pumped 300 uh, uh, million dollars into the prison system, uh, expanded the prison population from about 700,000 to two million. Um, you, you you left deindustrialized pockets. Uh, y- there was no hope for them to make a living within the legal economy. Um, they're not producing money for the corporations on the streets of these industrial wastelands, but you lock them in a cage and they can produce fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year for the prison contractors, for Aramark, which runs the food service, for Global Tel Link, which uh, has these horrible four to five times uh, what our phone rates are, and, and that makes me extremely uh, angry because for uh, children, the only way they can have contact with their parents, incarcerated parents, is through the telephone, uh, the privatization of uh, medical services, uh um jpay money transfer there it's a billion billions in terms of predatory activity and dostoevsky says if you want to understand the heart of a society look in their prisons look what they do to the most vulnerable mm-hmm. and now we have almost a million prisoners who work for for-profit corporations.
0: And there are cities and counties that tell prisons, if you build here, we'll keep the cages full.
1: Yeah, well, they do. They And they do keep. And their lobbyists pass laws uh, to keep recidivism rates over 60 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people say the system doesn't work. That's wrong. The system works exactly the way it's designed to work. And we just uh, have had uh, this uh, prison work stoppage, commissary boycott, even hunger strikes within the system. Because they fully understand uh, that the only way to end slavery, and we're talking about states like Georgia, where people work 40 hours a week for nothing, or they work for 20 cents an hour, uh, is to stop being a slave. Because if if you paid the minimum wage within prisons, and you don't have to under the 13th Amendment, the prison system would not be sustainable. It would just be economically too costly to sustain. So you look at marginal communities, you've stripped people of their rights, you engage in police terror, um, and they replicate the condition of the stateless, which Hannah Arendt writes about. And she said the danger is that when you have a, a section of your society who can be stripped of their rights, in essence, rights become privileges, then, in a moment of unrest or instability, you have both a legal and a physical mechanism by which everyone can be stripped of their rights. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I mean, just from a a kind of human point of view, uh, I'm incensed at what we do to the poor, and in particular, poor people of color. But also, as somebody who has covered disintegrating societies, uh, I'm frightened uh, by the normalization, including lethal police force. I mean, an average of 3.3 Americans, almost all of whom are unarmed, are murdered by police in the streets of our city every day. Uh, And if you think it won't affect us, then you don't know anything about
0: history. You quote Malcolm X, don't run around trying to make friends with someone who's depriving you of your rights. They're not your friends. No, they're your enemies. Treat them like that, fight them, and you'll get your freedom. After you get your freedom, your enemy will respect you. I say that with no hate. I don't have any hate. I've got some sense. I'm not going to let anyone who hates me tell me to love him. The reason that's particularly intriguing is we talk about the corporate the elite, the people who have all the power and all the money benefiting when we fight amongst ourselves, when the lower classes fight amongst themselves. And it's easy to look at the people who want to ban abortion, who are doing the preppers and anticipate that, you know, they're going to have to shoot everyone. It's easy to look at them and say, that's the person who hates me. That's the person who I don't want to be friends with. So make that distinction for us with Malcolm X's quote.
1: Well, Malcolm understood the nature of power and... uh You know, I do come out of a Divinity School background, and power is the problem. And so uh, when people wield power to carry out acts of radical evil, when they seek to extinguish life—and they are, through the fossil fuel industry, seeking to extinguish life for all of us and our children—then one has to react exactly the way Malcolm pointed out. but I, I admire Malcolm X quite a bit, and uh, I I think Malcolm was uh, like Martin Luther King, uh, one of our great prophets. I mean, Malcolm wrote about white Southerners, and he actually had a great quote where he said, uh, "You know, I'd rather have a white Southerner call me the N-word than deal with a white liberal." Um, uh, Malcolm got power completely, as did King. You know, and and when King moved on at the end of the civil rights movement towards economic justice, those white liberals walked out on him. He was all alone uh, because yes, they could handle desegregation, but as King and Malcolm understood, there would never be racial justice in this country until there was economic justice, which means reparations. Um, And the inability on the part of the white ruling elites to face the monstrous crime against humanity that they carried out in order to enrich this country, both against Native Americans and African Americans.
0: I want to go back to the fact that so many of our audience members are asking about how you talk to people with whom you have opposing views. And I'm thinking about the person that you interviewed in the book whose view of—I can imagine what he'd say about reparations—but the the way that black people portray how many people get attacked that there's actually more black on white crime, um, that people who didn't own slaves or slaves were happy slaves were sad when their masters died, and I'm. Oh, tra- that was
1: Dylan Roof, but.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but it's an attitude that's out there. I mean, this is how would you subtracting Dylan Roof? How would you talk to someone when you're trying to explain, for example, reparations when you're trying to talk about the generational loss with something of slavery. Well, you,
1: you can't speak to people who are not uh, engaged in the real world. I spent two years writing a book on the Christian right called American Fascists, the Christian right and the war on America. And I didn't actually use the word fascist lightly. I look at them as Christian heretics. They have fused the iconography and language of the Christian religion uh, with uh, the iconography and language of the state, which is fascism for me. Um, they are not about love. They are about hate. Um, They are biblical. They are selective literalists. They don't actually know the Bible. I mean, when I was with them, I was always up front about where I came from. And as soon as they realized that I grew up in the church, my father was a Presbyterian minister, and I was a graduate of Harvard, they never wanted to talk about the Bible with me. They were too (laughs) frightened uh, because they only know what they were fed, that buttressed their peculiar ideology. Mm-hmm. So you're never gonna argue someone like that out of creationism. It isn't gonna happen. And the reason is because the real world, the world out there, the world uh, where magic Jesus wasn't watching out for them, almost destroyed them. And the stories in that book are also heartbreaking. Uh, and, they, and I was moved by them. So your substance abuse, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, uh, unemployment, evictions, I mean, their lives were just, uh, ripped apart by the disintegration of their communities, their families, and the economic, uh, blockages that prevented them from, uh, reaching their hopes and aspirations. And I came at the end of that book to the conclusion that we're not going to, we're not going to argue them out Mm. of any of that. Um, the only way to blunt that movement, which I wrote that book 10 years ago, which has now gotten worse because these Christian fascists are rapidly filling the ideological vacuum around Donald Trump, uh, is to reintegrate them into the economy. And so you ask how to speak to them. I sat for hours and interviewed them about their lives, about what they suffered, about what they endured, about and, and those stories engendered in me a very real and legitimate empathy, and they felt it. And the other thing is I never ever, and this comes out of being a reporter for many years, I'm always completely honest with the people I interview. I never pretend to be something I'm not. I never use a pseudonym. And when I did the Christian right, they knew I came out of the liberal church. They knew I went to Harvard Divinity School. And I think that when you have that kind of honesty, coupled with the capacity for empathy, you can actually have meaningful conversations. Uh, and what was interesting is that there were people in that book on the Christian right whose worldview was almost diametrically opposed to mine, but who, who, who afterwards contacted me because I had told their stories with compassion and respect. Mm. Uh, and so I think that when you ask how we speak to them, We speak to them about their suffering and we empathize with that suffering and that is the start of a relationship and we grasp that they have retreated into a form of magical thinking out of despair and that trying to dissuade them of that magical thinking rips down the last protective cover they have. And so I I didn't pretend that I believed in creationism and yet... I didn't try and argue them out of the idea that in six days God created all living beings, including T-Rex, who was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, which, you know, they believe. I mean, and if you go to the Creationist Museum in Peterborough, Kentucky, they have a T-Rex with a saddle on it. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's funny in here, but when you're sitting there with 40 people and believe it, it's not funny, it's chilling. And the guide is saying, well, I know you all wonder why T-Rex had such big teeth, it's because Adam and Eve used T-Rex to open the coconuts. But that shows you how how they've disengaged with the real world. And that is, anthropologists call it crisis cults. You saw it with the ghost dance in 1890. That is a characteristic of every society. None of us are immune from it, Uh, but it is a symptom of a society in deep, deep distress.
0: I didn't realize until I read your book that there are Silicon Valley preppers, that even at the highest echelons, uh, yeah, there are sure. people preparing for Let, the let's end. Let's
1: up. not get started on Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> the well, great, fact, great, great enabler of the security and surveillance state.
0: <laughs> we promised we would get into some of your last chapter. <laughs> I enjoyed this from one of the audience members. Okay, I haven't read the last chapter of the book. What can be done? Okay, we're getting into that. Talk about Burdock House.
1: So I... We have to regain communities that have been destroyed to pit power against power. We have to build alternative systems that sever us from the tentacles of corporate power. Um, We have to turn off our electronic hallucinations. Um, You know, if you are sitting alone in your room, furiously writing on your computer screen, um, you know, some diatribe against state authority, you are. Uh, doing just what the state wants, which is sitting alone in your room in front of a computer screen. Um, We have to build relationships the only way relationships can be built, and that's face-to-face. The fact that I had real relationships with members of the Christian, not the leaders who are, you know, these people who run these megachurches, they are, they're all like Trump. People say, how can the Christian right, you know, ally with Trump? And that gives the Christian right a morality it doesn't have. These megachurch pastors, I mean, even in terms of sexual proclivities, they're doing things Trump never dreamed of. Uh, so, and they're making money off of people's despair, which is how Trump made his money. So, uh, they're, they're complete, they're, they're two peas in a pod. They're the same, they're, they're um, but the fact that I could have relationships, and what we have to build those relationships, and that comes with listening, it comes with empathy. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, w- You know, I was quite upfront. If they made a particular comment about a racial group or homosexuals, I, I didn't let it pass. But it doesn't mean you can't have— And if we don't rebuild those relationships, and if we don't rebuild structures to pit power against power, then in the next financial crash, which is coming— um, and, and moment of instability, um, they will play us in a very frightening way. I mean, Trump is not a product of just our decayed political system, Boris Johnson, Orban, and Hungary. It's happening throughout the industrialized world where the wreckage of neoliberalism has destroyed, uh, has concentrated wealth in the hands of the oligarchic class and destroyed democratic institutions. And we are watching Betsy DeVos destroy public education. And why? Because the Department of Education spends $63 uh, uh, billion dollars a year on education, and the hedge funds want it. And they're going to get it. Uh, I mean, the pillage won't stop until we make them stop. Burdock House. Burdock House is an example of that. Former Cap kids in their 20s Former Catholic workers, they buy an old warehouse for twenty-five thousand dollars. They recon, recondition it, refurbish it to have rooms uh, in the backyard. They hold. It was I found it quite moving. Uh, people, these kids trapped in these low-wage, menial, uh, you know, deadening jobs, uh, come and read poetry. One of the guys I interviewed is quite a talented blues musician. Was playing blues and. And look, that, we have to get in touch with those non-rational forces that the technological society seeks to diminish or extinguish. What are those forces? Beauty, truth, grief, search for meaning, the struggle with our own mortality. This is what makes a complete human being. And it's why the technocratic state makes war on the humanities and culture.
0: Chris Hedges talking with me for InDeep at Kepler's Books in Menlo Park. The interview is coming to InDeep stations this week and is currently running on C-SPAN TV. And that is a wrap on today's broadcast. Brad and Des will come back to you on the next go-round, and I will be back next week. Take care of them in the meantime. Until then, good luck, world.